Well, good morning. It's good to be with you this morning. I'm sorry your pastor is not, his family is not well. Uh, I was talking to him yesterday. It was great to catch up with him a little bit. And I am thankful for his friendship, um, thankful for his fellowship in the gospel, and thankful for you all. Uh, it's been some time since I've seen some of you, and some of you I've never met before. My name is Joel Huffstutler. I'm pastor of Fallsbury and Bible Church in Cuyahoga Falls. Uh, just uh, hopping a skip away from here, and uh, I grew up in northern Illinois with a lot of corn, and so it's nice to see some corn stalks uh, as I'm driving around. I'm going to ask you to turn this morning to Psalm 55, Psalm 55. I just happened to be at a conference Friday and Saturday, and I just happened to ask my pastoral intern to preach today and was actually anticipating getting some rest in that way. (laughs) But I also happened to really enjoy the conference, and when you hear God's Word preached six or seven times, and you're a preacher, you just want to preach. So I was thanking the Lord this morning for the opportunity to be able to preach today, in spite of my previous plans. Psalm 55, our church family's been going through the Psalms for a number of years, uh, off and on. And uh, we're in a section of Psalms that appears to be Uh, focused on the enemies of David. If you look at Psalm 52, I don't know if you need to turn the page or not, but Doeg, the Edomite who slaughtered the priests of the Lord, is in the title. David's prayer there is directed towards him. Psalm 53, there are enemies, fools, who David is praying about. Uh, He mentions God scattering the bones of him who camps against you. Psalm 54 is the Ziphites. If you look at the title of Psalm 54, it's the Ziphites who went and told Saul, is not David hiding among us? And this is a group of people within David's own tribe, tribe of Judah, who betrayed him to Saul. They told Saul where he was Uh, Perhaps they assumed that Saul was right in his desire to kill David. But Psalm 55, within the psalm, there is a reference to one individual that David speaks of in verse 13 as a man. He says, my equal, my companion, my familiar friend. And it's this friend who had treacherously betrayed him, along with, it appears, the entire nation. I think we'll see that as we look through the psalm, that David is in Psalm 55 in a circumstance that is of great turmoil, great trouble for him, and it appears that he's talking about Ahithophel, it appears that he is talking about Uh, the nation following Absalom, but Ahithophel, his close companion and counselor, counselor to the king, uh, 
was the one who, as he spent time in council with him and then also worshipped with him publicly, this man, at one point, I think there's a cause for it, treacherously betrayed David. And that, I believe, in this psalm is weighing heavy on his heart. Now, that's not the only thing that's weighing on his heart. But he describes him in those verses, verses 13 and 14, and then again in verse 20 and 21. So it's like he talks about him, and then he leaves him for a little bit, and then he talks about him again, this one person who had treacherously betrayed him. Let's read through the psalm this morning, Psalm 55. The title says, To the choir master with stringed instruments, a maskil, or a teaching instruction psalm of David. Give ear to my prayer, O God, and hide not yourself from my plea for mercy. Attend to me and answer me. I am restless in my complaint and I moan because of the enemy, because of the oppression of the wicked, for they drop trouble upon me and in anger they bear a grudge against me. My heart is in anguish within me, for the terrors of death have fallen upon me. Fear and trembling come upon me and horror overwhelms me. And I say, oh, that I had wings like a dove, I would fly away and be at rest. Yes, I would wander far away. I would lodge in the wilderness, Selah. I would hurry to find a shelter from the raging wind and tempest. Destroy, O Lord, divide their tongues, for I see violence and strife in the city. Day and night they go around it on its walls, and iniquity and trouble are within it. Ruin is in its midst. Oppression and fraud do not depart from its marketplace. For it is not an enemy who taunts me, then I could bear it. It is not an adversary who deals insolently with me, then I could hide from him. But it is you, a man my equal, my companion, my familiar friend. We used to take sweet counsel together within God's house. We walked in the throng. Let death steal over them. Let them go down to Sheol alive. For evil is in their dwelling place and in their heart. But I call to God, and the Lord will save me. Evening and morning and at noon I utter my complaint and moan, and he hears my voice. He redeems my soul in safety from the battle that I wage, for many are arrayed against me. God will give ear and humble them, he who is enthroned from of old, Selah, because they do not change and do not fear God. My companion stretched out his hand against his friends. He violated his covenant. His speech was smooth as butter, yet war was in his heart. His words were softer than oil, yet they were drawn swords. Cast your burden on the Lord, and he will sustain you. He will never permit the righteous to be moved. But you, O God, will cast them down into the pit of destruction. Men of blood and treachery shall not live out half their days, but I will trust in you. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. Praise the Lord for his word. Praise the Lord for the guide that it is and the grace that it is to us. I hope it'll be a grace to you today. Do you worry? Remember Jesus talked about worry, how you can't really add anything to your life, your stature, by thinking about it. Uh, You really can't change anything by your worry. 
Martin Luther, as he wrote a letter to his wife, actually said that her worry was causing him more trouble than saving him from trouble. He, and it was also causing her trouble. He said to Katie, he called her, his rib. He said, I thank you very kindly for your great worry, which robs you of sleep. Since the date that you started to worry about me, the fire in my quarters right outside the door of my room tried to devour me. And yesterday, no doubt because of the strength of your worries, a stone almost fell on my head and nearly squashed me as, a, as in a mousetrap. For in our secret chamber, he's talking about the restroom, he says mortar has been falling down for about two days. We called in some people who merely touched the stone with two fingers and it fell down. The stone was as big as a long pillow and as wide as a large hand, and it intended to repay you for your holy worries had the dear angels not protected me. He's talking about how his wife's worries, rather than her prayers, are causing these problems. He says, now, I worry that if you do not stop worrying, the earth will finally swallow us up and all the elements will chase us. Is this the way you learn the catechism and the faith? And then he said this, pray and let God worry. You have certainly not been commanded to worry about me or about yourself. Cast your burden on the Lord and he will sustain you. Now, Martin Luther's life at different times was in danger, and his wife had reason to be concerned, but not worry. Uh, we're taught in the Scriptures to cast our care upon the Lord, for He cares for us. Peter's quotation there likely comes from this psalm. Verse 22, cast your burden on the Lord and He will sustain you. Well, that advice and counsel, whether it was self-counsel for David himself or whether he was giving that as he was instructing those who were reading the psalm, he's actually practicing in this psalm. He's casting his burden on the Lord. Do you? Do you cast your burdens on the Lord? And as you cast your burdens on the Lord, do you find him fulfilling that promise? He will sustain you. I want you to notice at the beginning of this psalm, there is an intense cry that David makes to the Lord. Notice verses 1 and 2, Give ear to my prayer, O God, and hide not yourself from my plea for mercy. Attend to me and answer me. I am restless in my complaint and I moan. And then he gives the reason in verse 3. But this is an intense cry. He says, O God. And he asks God to listen to him more than once. You ever had somebody come to you and say, listen to me, listen, please listen to me. There's an intensity about it, and I believe that's what's going on here. And he, as he speaks, he says, I am restless in my complaint and I moan. He's expressing his grievance, the anxiety that he's experiencing. And yes, he's experiencing anxiety. He's experiencing trouble in his soul, distracted, distraught distressed, and he's moaning, he's deeply agitated, and he's crying out to the Lord. And there are times where the circumstances in our lives bring us to that place. But you know what we don't always do? We don't always pray. Instead, we worry. And we look to our own scheming or our own solutions for whatever problems we find ourselves in. Now, I believe David's problems here in this psalm are actually self-caused. It's not that others weren't sinning, but David had sinned in his kingdom, and he had caused problems for himself. 
He had sinned against Uriah, took Uriah's life. He'd sinned with Bathsheba, it was a, a, a committed adultery with her, and I believe offended the man that he's talking about in this psalm. In verse 3, at the end of the verse, it says, In anger they bear a grudge against me. Somebody that has a grudge against David. You look at the details regarding who Bathsheba is. Ahithophel, David's counselor, was her grandfather. So David had actually destroyed his granddaughter's marriage and taken her to be his wife. Now, that would have been a very shameful thing. Of course, David tried to keep all that hidden. But for Ahithophel's family, it would have been a shameful thing for him to have to experience and to watch David do that. Now, we sang this morning, Psalm 51, where David actually asks for God's forgiveness, and God gave it. In fact, when David confessed his sin, I have sinned against the Lord, Nathan said, God's put away your sin. Nevertheless, there were going to be consequences for David's sin, and one was the sword would not depart from David's household. And Absalom, his son, as you read the story following David's sin, Absalom, his son, started to use the sword. And eventually, Absalom rose up in rebellion against his father with the help of Ahithophel. So I think it's not without reason that David says in verse 1, Give ear to my prayer, O God, and hide not yourself from my plea for mercy. That's the word for asking God to not give me what I deserve. Now, David deserved punishment. God didn't take his life, although David deserved it. He deserved to die for his murder of Uriah. He deserved to die for his adultery with Bathsheba. David sinned grievously against the Lord, and now he's in the thick of it. He's feeling the consequences for his sin. Now, one thing that's encouraging about Psalm 51 is that we can pray for forgiveness, but it's also encouraging in Psalm 55 that we can pray in the midst of those consequences when we're suffering discipline from the Lord for His help. You can pray for His help. That's what David is doing here. He's going through trouble. You can see that based on his description of his heart in verse 2. But what is the trouble? And I would describe this in terms of a storm. <clears throat> Why? Because in verse 8, as he describes his circumstance, look down at verse 8, he says, I would hurry to find a shelter from the raging wind and tempest. He's going through a storm. Uh, Self-caused, yes. Caused by other sins, yes. But he's going through a storm. He's going through distress. And the distress is not only inward, it's outward. I was reminded as I was studying the psalm of Paul's statement in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 5, he says, for even when we came into Macedonia, our flesh had no rest, but we were afflicted on every side, conflicts without, fears within. Conflicts without, fears within. You get an allusion there in verse 2 to the things that are going on in his heart. But what is going on outside? And we're going to go from the inside to the outside and back to the inside in David's life. And you'll see he really is going through a storm. Look at verse 3. He says, because of the noise of the enemy. 
That Hebrew word is often translated, most often translated, voice. But of course, enemies make noises too in battle and that sort of thing against those that they're fighting against. I tend to interpret that as the voice of the enemy because there are words that are being sent David's direction. You'll see as you read through David's history that there were words, curses even directed at him during this time of rebellion. Notice it says also because of the oppression of the wicked or the affliction of the wicked. Those who were wicked, and it's, it's important, I believe, to recognize that those who are aligned against him are actually wicked. They are fighting against David. They're oppressing, afflicting him. In verse 3, as the verse continues, it says, they drop trouble upon me. And as I follow cross-references in my Bible or the software that I use, I notice that that phrase, drop trouble, went right to the place where a man by the name of Shimei was cursing David. He was casting curses upon David. He was calling him a man of bloodshed. He was calling for David to leave Jerusalem and get out of here. And may God judge you, you worthless fellow, you man of Belial. So it's the noise of, or the voice of the enemy, the oppression or the affliction of the wicked, those, that trouble or a difficulty that's being dropped and weighing now on David. And then the last part of verse 3, in anger, they... So if it was Ahithophel, it wasn't just Ahithophel. They bear a grudge against me. And it was specifically a sin mentioned in the law to bear a grudge against a brother. Even if a brother had done you wrong, that was to be corrected. That was to be dealt with. There was to be forgiveness and reconciliation sought. That's, of course, the teaching of the Bible, the New Testament as well. We're to not let bitterness or wrath, or anger, any of those things rest or seethe in our hearts. We need to deal with our sin. David here is acknowledging that there is a grudge that is being held against him, and it's they. Now, he was king, and as a ruler, right, rulers can do one thing and have people happy with him and angry with him at the same time. And he can do something else, and it's the opposite. It's the people who were angry are now happy. And so, likely as a king, he just by his ruling, even ruling in the fear of God, he could cause people to have a grudge against him. But what happens when you have a ruler who's sinning and committing sin, and then he has to feel the consequences of that, and that does seem to be what's going on. Well, that's the outside, and we haven't seen all of what's going on on the outside. He's going to describe it a little bit later as well, but then he goes back to his heart. He has, says, he has said restless in his complaint and moaning those verbal, you know, those things that are coming out of his heart and out of his mouth, even a moan is telling you there's something going on. What is it? Well, he says, my heart is in anguish. My heart is in anguish within me, and the terrors of death have fallen upon me. Now, David is not talking to you. He's not talking to me. Who's he talking to? And rather than keeping these things in that he's going through, he's talking to the Lord. And that's what you and I need to do when we're going through trouble. When there is conflict within, when there's something going on in our hearts and there's trouble without that's causing that, 
and we haven't seen the depth of David's trouble, but I want to just encourage you to pray when you're going through a difficult time. Spurgeon, in his Treasury of David, his commentary in the Psalms, said, The fact is so commonly before us, otherwise we should be surprised to observe how universally and constantly the saints resort to prayer in seasons of distress. From the great elder brother, that's the Lord Jesus, down to the very least of the divine family, all of them delight in prayer. They run as naturally to the mercy seat in time of trouble as the little chickens to the hen in the hour of danger. So what do you run to? Is it worry? Or is it prayer? Is it yourself and your scheming? Or is it to the Lord and His sovereignty? Remember, not only can He provide peace that passes understanding, but He also can help you through the circumstance. He can give you grace. He can give you, as David is praying for here, mercy. He can remove the circumstances that are causing you distress. Now, he may not, but this is still the right thing to do, is to come to the Lord in prayer. David is praying, and he's just telling the Lord like it is in his heart. He's telling the Lord what the Lord already knows. He's the heart knower, but he's telling the Lord anyway. Verse 4, my heart is in anguish. This is the idea of someone who's writhing in pain, sometimes used to describe a woman in labor, Isaiah 13 in Scripture. My heart is in anguish within me. The terrors of death have fallen upon me. What's that talking about? He's afraid that he's going to die, the fear that he may die as a result of what he's going through. He's calling upon God and telling him, these terrors have fallen upon me, and he's afraid. Fear and trembling come upon me and horror. The idea of shuddering, intense and profound fear is coming upon him. If you were to look through the Scriptures for that idea of horror overwhelming someone, you can find in Ezekiel 7 an example where it describes a scene of judgment upon people. Ezekiel describes the scene as all hands will hang limp and knees will become like water. They will gird themselves with sackcloth and shuddering will overwhelm them. They cannot satisfy their appetite, nor can they fill their stomachs, for their iniquity has become an occasion of stumbling. So the idea of physical weakness, shuddering, when, when you think about the circumstance, your body just trembles and shakes, and you may be unable to eat. I don't know if you've ever been through a circumstance like that where you've been in such turmoil and trouble that you just you lost your appetite. I had a circumstance years ago with some hostility in a relationship with someone I saw every single day, and I never could figure out a way out of the circumstance. And every day I came into the place where I was working with this person, I saw their car, and I would just, my heart would sink. I wasn't dealing with it in the right way. I wasn't talking to the Lord like I should have been. And as a result, I'm just, I mean, literal turmoil in my heart. And notice how David responds to this circumstance. Look at verse 6. He says, And I say, Oh, that I had wings like a dove. I would fly away and be at rest. Yes, I would wander far away. I would lodge in the wilderness, Selah. I would hurry to find a shelter from the raging wind and tempest. What's he want to do? He wants to run. 
He wants to get out of the circumstance. He doesn't want to stay in the turmoil. We have to remember who this was. This is David. This is, this is the same man who fought Goliath one-on-one. This is the same man who would enter into battle with the enemy with his sword, and he may have soldiers with him, but he's oftentimes the first in. I <laughs> like what one commentator said. He said he was no chicken-hearted man. This is David. But David is fearful, and he wants to run and get away, fly away, wishes he had wings to get away from his circumstance. But he's praying. And I just want to encourage you, when you find yourself in a circumstance you really can't get out of, and there's turmoil, and there's conflict, and and all of that is going on, that is time to pray and to look to the Lord. Of course, it's always time to pray, but especially then. That's what David's doing, and he's just telling the Lord like it is. What is prayer? It's talking to God. Now, does he know? Yes, of course. He even knows what we're going to ask. He knows what we're going to say before we do. But he still commands us to pray and to pray without ceasing and to cast our cares upon him, for he cares for you, Peter says. Now, he's going to make some petitions here, and it's interesting, as you look at these Old Testament psalms, there are times where you see a call for God to judge. And this sometimes causes trouble for us because we wonder, can we pray that, or is it right to pray that? Look at what it says in verse 9. It says, destroy, O Lord, divide their tongues, for I see violence and strife in the city. Destroy? Uh, The word that's translated there, destroy, is a word that's used in other places, translated confuse. And I think in light of the next verb, you could say that what he's talking about is not destruction and putting them in the pit of hell, at least not this petition, but he's asking God to frustrate their plans. Destroy, O Lord, divide their tongues. That's an allusion back to the Tower of Babel where God did confuse the tongues of the people who are working on this tower, which was viewed as an act of rebellion against God, and God just changed their languages, and they couldn't work together. David is asking here for whatever's going on as he's describing his enemies, he, he's asking the Lord to frustrate, to thwart the plans of the wicked. And of course, God is good at doing that. The psalmist says, Psalm 146, verse 9, the Lord protects the strangers, he supports the fatherless and the widow, and he thwarts the way of the wicked. And just look at Daniel, and look at Daniel's three friends, and you can see God thwarting the plans of the wicked to destroy Daniel, to destroy his three friends. God had other plans for those men. And so David here is praying that God would frustrate the plans of these people. Now, he's going to describe what's going on in Jerusalem. When he says in verse 9, I see violence and strife in the city, the city that David had the closest connection to and attachment to as he reigned as king was Jerusalem, the city that he himself conquered, this fortress city, this place that was high up on a mountain, that he conquered from the Jebusites and took as his capital. It was Jerusalem, the city of peace, 
But there's not peace right now in the city. In fact, as he describes in the verse there, verse 9, he says, I see violence and strife in the city. What else is going on in the city? Well, just read through the next couple of verses, and you see there's all kinds of sin going on in this city. Not worship, even though this is the city called by the Lord's name. This is the place where the Lord set his name. This is the place where God would be worshiped, where the tribes would gather together, and in harmony they would worship the Lord on those feast days, but not now. What's going on in that city now is, verse 9, violence and strife. Verse 10, day and night they go around it on its walls, and iniquity and trouble are within it. There are some who view those words, violence and strife, iniquity and trouble, as sort of personified characters that are going through this city. Now, we're obviously talking about the actual people. And if this is a time of national rebellion then David is praying about what's taking place as these people, wicked people, are organizing a rebellion against him. And what Absalom did, even though God predicted that it would happen, even though it was discipline on David, it was still sinful and wrong. And Absalom was a murderer. So what's taking place in the city is all of this wickedness. And we're not done. Look at verse 11. It says, ruin is in its midst. Oppression and fraud do not depart from its marketplace. Violence, strife, wickedness, iniquity, mischief, destruction, oppression, deceit, that's what's going on in this city. And there's one person who is a part of this that is striking to David, just striking. Look at verse 12. He says, for it is not an enemy who taunts me, then I could bear it. It is not an adversary who deals insolently with me. Then I could hide from him. But it is you. It's like he's addressing him in this psalm, and he's imagining this conversation. It's you, a man, my equal. I think the reference here is to the nobility of the person that he's talking about. This is no commoner. This is someone who shared acquaintance with the king shared counsel with the king, was a friend of the king. Look at verse 13. It is you, a man, my equal, my companion, my familiar friend. We used to take sweet counsel together. Within God's house, we walked in the throng. So do you think about the throng of God's people as they came together for worship, and you look at David, and who's David with? He's with this person. And I think as you look at the story in 2 Samuel, there are certainly more than Ahithophel and Absalom that would have rebelled against David. But I think Ahithophel is the most likely candidate for who this is. And David, when he heard that Ahithophel, his counselor, had rebelled against him, if you, if you remember the scene, if you've never read it, David finds out that the hearts of the men of Israel are with Absalom his son. His son is rebelling against him. Absalom declares himself king in Hebron, and he's on his way to Jerusalem. And David knows that if he doesn't leave Jerusalem, that he and his people are going to die because he doesn't have the manpower to overcome what's coming at him. So he starts to leave, and as he leaves Jerusalem, he goes down through the valley and up the Mount of Olives. Someone comes to him and says, Ahithophel is among the conspirators. 
Ahithophel. David's next words are, Oh, Lord, I pray, make the counsel of Ahithophel foolishness. He knew that Ahithophel was a wise counselor. He had received counsel from him before. But in this case, as he's praying here in this psalm, remembering those things, he now is thinking about the treachery of this man. That treachery, again, is weighing on him. We see him return to this traitor later. But look at his next words. He says in verse 15, Let death steal over them. Let them go down to Sheol alive, for evil is in their dwelling place and in their heart. Now, he has switched from, verses 13 and 14, from one person to then a plurality, because he says in verse 15, let death steal over them. So he's talking about one person, but then he's talking about the whole group, and he's saying, let death come to them. Again, we have to remember as a psalm and a prayer, we, we sometimes question whether we could pray the same thing. To pray that God would frustrate the plans of the wicked, that he would not allow them to accomplish their wickedness is one thing, but to pray for their death, to pray for their death. And we might say, well, Jesus said, love your enemies. We can't pray for the death of the wicked. So that gives us a challenge because we're to sing, Right? Psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, and Psalm 55 is among them. Now, I think it's important to remember that as he talks about these traitors, that they are wicked, and to expect that God is going to judge the wicked justly is correct. It's a right thing. So there's a sense in which he's asking God to deal with evil, Another thing to remember is that David is the king of Israel. This is God's chosen king for his nation. And so God is the head of this nation. He has an earthly king who represents him, but to rebel against this king, sinful as he may be, is to rebel against God. Now, that doesn't make David God, and it doesn't make David, uh, David's actions always right, but when David prays against the wicked and calls for their death, God could justly deal with the wicked in that way, and it would not be a sin to pray. Now, is it right for us to pray such a prayer? Well, I think you'd have to say, according to verse 9, can you pray that God would frustrate the plans of the wicked? Yes. If we ever prayed for God to judge the wicked, we have to remember, how does God deal with his enemies? Well, he tells us to love our enemies right? I mean, we're to love our enemies. If we pray that God will judge his enemies, wouldn't we want him to do what he did for us, saving us in our wickedness? And just think about the person in the New Testament who was notoriously fighting against God's church and God's people. It was the Apostle Paul. And as the early church dealt with what the Apostle Paul was doing, I'm sure they prayed that his plans would be frustrated. I'm sure they wanted God's judgment to come upon him. And so it's a challenge to us to pray, isn't it? To pray for God's judgment, his just judgment upon our enemies. But that would be right 
but we don't know God's will for that person. And so I think what David Dixon said in his commentary in the Psalms was helpful. Martin Luther also said something that was helpful. Dixon said, If any of the enemies of God's people belong to God's election or the elect, the church's prayer against them gives way to their conversion and seeks no more than that the judgment should follow them only until they acknowledge their sin, turn, and seek God. In other words, that may be, like the Apostle Paul, someone upon whom God is going to show mercy. And so we would want God to glorify His mercy, but God is also glorified in His judgment, but we don't know. And because we don't know, we're not the Holy Spirit. We don't have a word from God. We can pray that God would have mercy on our enemies, but if they rebel against Him, if they do not turn, God would be just, and we would pray for God to judge the wicked. Martin Luther said this. I also thought this was helpful. We should pray that our enemies be converted and become our friends, and if not, that by their doing and designing be bound to fail and have no success, and that their persons perish rather than the gospel and the kingdom of Christ, we too pray for our angry enemies, not that God protect and strengthen them in their ways as we pray for Christians, or that He help them, but that they be converted if they can be, or if they refuse, that God oppose them, stop them, and end the game to their harm and misfortune. Now David here is praying, look at how he says it, let death steal over them, let them go down to Sheol alive. That's an allusion to another Old Testament judgment. That would be Korah as he rebelled against Moses. And Moses said that if this rebellion is, if God is angry with this, then let the earth open up and swallow these men alive. And he told the people to clear out and you read what happened. God judged his enemies right there and then. Look at how he describes, verse 15, their status, their state before the Lord. Why is he calling for their death? He says, for evil is in their dwelling place and in their heart. It's in their home. It's in their heart. This is decidedly so. They've rebelled against him. And it's a sobering thing that one of the people that he's praying about would be his son in the end, his rebel son. To think that I would be praying that God would judge the wicked and that would include one of my children is just a horrific thought. But in the end, if my child or your child rebels against God and never turns and fights against him, it would be just for God to judge them. God is holy, and He is God, and He will not be rebelled against. In the end, every knee will bow to Christ. There will be some who will willingly take the knee and go even further to bow down their face. There will be some whose knee They're forced down to their knee to submit because of the hardness, depravity, wickedness of their heart. What a sobering thing. 
We would never want that, and that's why we preach the gospel, so that people would hear the good news that God is a forgiving God, that he will save and rescue those who have rebelled against him. And if you're a believer in Jesus Christ today, we have to remember we were his enemies. Praise the Lord for mercy. Now that call for destruction of the wicked is followed by another cry for his own deliverance and confidence that God is going to deliver him. Look at verse 16 and quickly here. He says, but I call to God and the Lord will save me. Evening and morning and at noon I utter my complaint and moan and he hears my voice. He redeems my soul in safety from the battle that I wage for many are arrayed against me. Now, one of the great things here is David's confidence in his prayer. He's confident that if he calls to God, that God will hear him. Notice in verse 17, end of the verse, it says, he hears my voice. But in hearing him, he will save him. And that's where he goes first before he even says that God will hear him. He says, I call to God and the Lord will save me. The Lord will rescue me. In light of the circumstance that David is talking about, this is not spiritual salvation. Although we would say God spiritually saves, He saves us from death, He saves us from sin, He saves us from punishment, He rescues us from that, and He brings us into His family, and then we are with Him forever. But He's literally praying here for physical deliverance from His enemies who are aligned against Him. And you notice also, as He prays here with faith, He talks about the frequency of His prayers, the frequency which if you're going through turmoil, sometimes you don't think in terms of stated times for prayer, but you just are praying because of the difficulty. And he says here, evening, verse 17, and morning and at noon, I utter my complaint and moan. And he hears my voice. Not only is he praying frequently, but he's praying fervently. He uses the word complaint, verse 17, and moan. The fact that he is also praying frequently tells you that there's a fervency of heart. He wants God to answer his prayer and deliver him from this circumstance. How frequently should you pray? We have plenty of biblical examples. Daniel prayed three times a day. So there were stated times of prayer in his life, but there are also in the lives of believers, I think of Nehemiah, when they're going through the circumstance, that's when they pray. Nehemiah is right there in the presence of the king, and he offers up a prayer to the Lord. And he's in Jerusalem, and he's walking around, and he offers up another prayer to the Lord. So the idea of praying without ceasing is both those stated times when we gather for prayer, and my own personal life as I set times for prayer, but it's also just the life. I mean, life as a believer is a life of prayer. And so here he says, verse 16, I will call upon God. This is his personal decision. It's a decision of faith. He does so frequently. He does so fervently. And he's confident that God is going to grant him what he's asking for. And that's why we pray. It is to experience the presence of God as we pray. But beyond that, aren't we looking for answers as we ask and in this circumstance, he's looking for God to deliver his very life. Verse 18, that word redeem, says he redeems my soul in safety. That's a word that's used in terms of rescuing. At one point in the Old Testament when 
Jonathan was with his father Saul in battle, and Saul had uttered a curse on anyone who would eat anything. Jonathan didn't hear the curse. And so Jonathan at one point is taking some honey that he finds, and he's putting it to his lips, and people see him doing that, and they're like, what did you just do? The king said we weren't supposed to eat anything. Well, when Saul found out and realized that he'd uttered a curse, and yes, that applied even to his own son, he said he should be put to death. And the people spoke up for Jonathan because he'd been their hero and won battles for them, and they redeemed Jonathan. Same word. They rescued him. David here is saying that God is going to rescue him in safety. Whatever is going on, even with Ahithophel's counsel, he's confident that God could even answer that prayer and bring him to a place. Look at the description, verse Uh, 18, he redeems my soul in safety. The idea is peace. From the battle that I wage, for many are arrayed against me. Now, look at verse 19. He says, God will give ear, again, confident of God's hearing, and humble them. The word there could be translated afflict. God will afflict them. God will give ear and humble or afflict them, he who is enthroned from of old. Who is in control and why do we pray? What do we remember when we pray our Father who is in heaven? He sits on the throne there. That throne is the eternal, universal throne. There's nothing greater than that throne. He is the one who's in charge. The enemy's not in charge. And he can frustrate the plans of the enemy, and he can judge the enemy. He can open up the earth and have them swallowed in, or he can frustrate their plot, and instead of you getting thrown in the lion's den and getting eaten, they get thrown in the lion's den and get eaten. God has a way of changing the circumstances and accomplishing his will and judging the wicked and bringing glory to himself. And David is reminded here, even as he prays, that God is on the throne. That's a good thing to remember when you come to God in prayer that he's on the throne. That's why David sometimes calls him my God, my king. He is the king. He's the king of kings. Look at the end of verse 19. God will give ear and humble them. He who is enthroned of old, Selah, that's a meditation on God's sovereignty. But then there's a meditation on the enemies here as he says they do not change and do not fear God. Why would God ultimately change them, or excuse me, destroy them? Why would he punish them? Why would he judge them? It would be because of their unrepentant wickedness. God gives mercy to those who repent, to those who turn in faith and look to him for mercy. That's why there may be someone here today, you need to look to the Lord and ask him for mercy, and he will have mercy on you. But if there's an impenitent heart, if there's no repentance, then that heart, that soul, there will be judgment for such a person, someone who does not fear God, does not have reverence for God, does not respect God. In the end, they will. They'll come to know that God is God, and they are not. Look briefly, verses 20 and 21 is again a meditation of what's weighing heavily on David's heart. This is the treacherous one that he's spoken of. 
My companion stretched out his hand against his friends. He violated his covenant. His speech is smooth as butter, was smooth as butter, yet war was in his heart. His words were softer than oil, yet they were drawn swords. Just quickly, that phrase, stretched out his hand, is the same phrase that David sometimes used as he warned his men not to stretch out their hand against the Lord's anointed. David found himself in a cave and his men wanted to kill Saul. David found himself in Saul's own camp while Saul and his men were asleep and one of his soldiers right by his side, Abishai, wanted to take his spear and pin Saul to the ground. And David said, it would be a sin to stretch out your hand against the Lord's anointed. But the person he's praying about in verse 20 has stretched out his hand, not only against his friends, but against David, who is the Lord's anointed. Verse 20, he violated his covenant. This could be a covenant oath that a person made to the king specifically to not fight against the king, to be constantly loyal to the king. Whatever it is, this man is a covenant breaker, and he's doing so deceptively. Verse 21, his speech is as smooth as butter, yet war was in his heart. So he was a hostile enemy ready to destroy, but you would never know it from his words. You'd never know it from his countenance. The only way you'd know it is as he stabbed you in the back. That's what seems to be David's reflection here. Verse 21, his speech was smooth as butter, yet war was in his heart. His words were softer than oil, yet they were drawn swords. And as he reflects upon this traitor, There was a deception that characterized this man's life until the time that he turned. Now, I don't know if you've ever been through something like that where someone has betrayed you and you've just, you felt stabbed in the back, whether by their words or their actions. So we're talking about, you know, we talk about worry and there are different things to worry about, right? This this is one of those things that weighs more heavily So we'd say if it's this extreme and David's saying, cast your burden on the Lord, then of course the smaller ones we need to cast on the Lord. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. But yes, even those great ones, don't be so overwhelmed by your circumstance that you don't take time, verse 22, to cast your burden on the Lord and trust the Lord to sustain you, to provide you with what you need to make it through the trial. Now, I believe it's a wonderful thing to look at David's life during this time because you see that even though he's under discipline, even though he's out of Jerusalem, God is showing loving kindness to him time after time after time. There's a man by the name of Barzillai who came down with lots of food and resources for David. He met David at a city called Maenaim. And he just gave all this stuff to David and his people. And there were others who did the very same thing. Barzillai, along with these others, are just bringing things to David. And David is realizing, although God may be disciplining me, he's still providing for me. He's still sustaining me. And beyond just those physical things that God sustains his people with, how does he sustain us? He sustains us by his grace. He sustains us by his peace. 
David here says, cast your burden on the Lord and he will sustain you. He will never permit the righteous to be moved. You'll not be moved from your position of stability if you're trusting in the Lord. 2 Corinthians 9 verse 8 says, God is able to make all grace abound to you so that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. And I want to just encourage you as David gives that, perhaps it's self-counsel to remind himself, cast your burden on the Lord. But this is also, if you looked at the title, a maskil, that means a psalm of instruction. That means that as he wrote this psalm, this lesson wasn't only for him, it was a lesson for those that he was writing the psalm for who would eventually sing that. Cast your burden on the Lord and he will sustain you. You might have a burden this morning and you just haven't cast it fully on the Lord. Or maybe you've cast part of it. Or maybe you feel like you already have cast it, but it's back on your shoulders again. I just want to encourage you to cast your burden on the Lord. Again, Peter likely taking this verse, verse 22, and using it as he writes to the churches there in First Peter, and he says, humble yourselves. He calls the people to humble themselves. And then he says, casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. It's actually humility that casts its cares and its burdens on someone else. It's pride that keeps it for ourselves. Now, what is God going to do for David and what is he confident of? Look at verse 23. You, O God, will cast them down into the pit of destruction. Men of blood and treachery shall not live out half their days. He's confident that God is going to take vengeance on the wicked and he's going to vindicate the righteous. He's going to deal with his enemies. And what's, again, a very sobering thing is that his son Absalom was literally cast into a pit. What does that verse say? You, O God, will cast them down into the pit of destruction. Absalom also was his son. Men of blood and treachery shall not live out half their days. Now David cried, Oh, my son Absalom, oh, Absalom, my son, my son, out of his grief for his son. But according to 2 Samuel, Absalom had rebelled not only against David, but against the Lord. He was a wicked man, and God judged him. And David was brought back to his throne. He lived out his days in peace. Now, there was some trouble as he came back in, but he lived out his days in peace. God had answered his prayer. His posture, which is the posture of all of us who pray at the end of the psalm, I will trust in you. May the Lord help us to trust in him, to cast our burden upon him, and help us to do that today. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Lord, I don't know what burdens are weighing heavily upon folks who are here this morning. We thank you, Lord, that even if all of us had very, very heavy burdens and we all at the same time cast them upon you, that you would not only be able to bear all of those burdens and hear our prayers all at the same time, but you can do so for all the people who live in this world. You are omnipotent, almighty, and you love your people. 
And so today we ask for your grace. We ask for your help to cast our burden on you. And we ask that you'd sustain us. Bless this church family. Lord, I thank you for Crossview Church. I thank you for what you're doing here. And as pastor of a sister church, uh, I don't know if they all know that we pray for them very often and care very much about the progress of the gospel here. But I pray for uh, the continued growth and establishment of this church family. I ask, Lord, that you provide for them what they need. And I pray, Lord, that you would direct their steps and that they would give a shining light to this community for Christ's sake. And I pray in his name. Amen.